episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the New World Pictures Podcast bonus episode. We have an incredible interview for you today. By the way, my name is Ryan. With me as always is Mark. I'm here. And Erica. Hey, I'm here also with Mark and Ryan. <laughs> and we're here together. Now, what we've been doing with some of our interviews lately is we've been trying to talk to people that have an overview of New World Pictures and their history. Or at yeah. least tangential histories. And this tangential one, stories. And this one has nothing to do with New World or even tangentially with New World. But Gary Jones is a guy who understands exploitation films. Yes. Yeah. Now, he has got a new movie out called Escape from Death Block 13. And when we saw this, we are like, okay... This is a modern day exploitation mm -hmm. film. And New World Pictures is a exploitation distribution company. So this fits perfectly with our, with what we do. So uh, we were excited to talk to him. Plus, Gary Jones worked on Evil Dead 2. Army of Darkness. Mosquito. Mosquito. Hard target. <laughs> Hard target. And we get to talk to him about all those things. We're also going to talk to him about low-budget filmmaking. We're going to talk to him about practical effects versus visual effects. We get to talk talk to him about my favorite, Hallmark Christmas movies. Hallmark yes. Christmas movies, which he has worked on a and lot. Lifetime movies. And Lifetime, and lifetime movies. Oh, I mean, I mean it, he's done it all, and we get to really talk to him about a lot. So I think there's a lot to pick up here about just filmmaking in general. He's had a very long career, uh, starting from the 80s into mm -hmm. now he's mm -hmm. been making movies mm -hmm. now his his most recent movie escape from death block 13 the lead actor of this movie which is a guy named robert bronzy who i saw initially in a movie called death kiss not death wish but death kiss and, and the reason is is that he looks identical to charles bronson sounds like him got but, into robbie robbie bronzy's uh, uh -huh. history we talk about how um he you know he's just like charles bronson in every way in every way yeah in every way except he has a hungarian accent other than that, well, but identical. didn't Charles Bronson have just a touch? Nope, just a tinge, just a little tinge. <laughs> nope, just a smack. Nope. Uh, so here's our conversation with Gary Jones. He is terrific. We know you were going to love this conversation. Here's a conversation with Gary Jones. Your movie, uh, Escape from Death Block 13, kind of caught our eye because it's a lot like a lot of the 70s exploitation films that we cover, <laughs> like, you know, Jackson County Jail, or but with like a little bit of... Uh, Charles Bronson's breakout when he uh, has to go in and uh, save Robert Duvall in a helicopter. And so it had a little bit of that flavor to us. Um, is that what you were basically trying, what what sort of inspired the the film? Yeah, you actually just nailed it. It was really that. I mean, I, you know, growing up in the 70s, you know, as a kid, I'm like glued to all these movies, you know, and um, it was kind of a simpler time. And the movies, they always resonated, you know, because they're always very high concept, you know. And then, of course, you'd have like, you know, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, you know, um, Mr. Majestic was one of my favorite, you know, and mm -hmm. um, Emperor of the North with Lee Marvin and, you know, Ernest Borgnine fighting on a train with two by fours and, and chains, which yeah. you get a little homage in our movie mm -hmm. for that. So, Indeed. yeah, no, it was, def was definitely that feel of that era growing up. And I wanted to go back and do those kind of do a movie like I grew up on, you know, kind of an homage back to that. So, yeah, it was it's completely rooted in that. So, you know, the audience has to go through a good, you know, 50, 60 minutes and the build up and there's action and fights. But I felt like 
for me, you know, it's that residual effect when you leave a movie and all those great movies from the 70s and early 80s did that where you left the movie having a great time, you know? And so I was always conscious of like 30, 40 minutes of a roller coaster ride of action, you know, tie up all the loose ends, make the villains pay, have a few surprises. Right. You know, and that's what I always try to do now is like just give like the audience 40 minutes of craziness, you know? And uh-huh. uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's a 70s movie, but then it's got a little bit of the kind of, I mean, look, all the Marvel movies, even the action movies today, you know, if you look at The Rock or you look at anything, you know, or Ryan Reynolds, it's big action. And then they're winking at the camera and saying a tagline, which, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, those were those trailer lines, you know, the yeah. one line in the trailer <laughs> yeah. that got you to the show, you know, of course, now in every movie, there's 50 of them. So, of course, I peppered a lot in the movie, too. But uh, but yeah, definitely. It's it's like a love letter back to the 70s, early 80s. Canon, Canon films, too. They just sure. Just sure. A, dozens of them every week you know and they're just yeah. over the top but yeah the 70s that was the era for me was like that was that golden era of stuff you know it's definitely a blend of that 70s 80s and the 80s like bronson career including uh, your star robert bronzy who i, I saw first in a movie death kiss years oh. ago which i believe you produced <laughs> And it was, I was definitely like, wait, is Charles, Charles Bronson is not alive. I don't, what is this movie? And I, I had to watch it uh, because here it is. It looks like Charles Bronson's in the movie. So how did you meet Robert Bronzy? So my buddy, uh, Jeff Miller, who's a producer, we've worked on movies together and he, he, he's got a pretty good career going. He's really, he's doing a lot of movies. So he calls me up, he goes, he said, why don't you help me produce, you know, finish it. And he had already, already shot the movie. And I said, sure. So I came in and helped him produce it. We finished it. I did some effects on it. Very, very low budget movie. And Rene Perez, who's like writer, director, editor on the movie, and he shot it. I mean, he, you know, he did a great job for very low money and kind of cranked out and it fits a little genre, you know. And so after that, I was like, okay, I was starting to think, well, I want to do a prison escape movie. And I live very close to the Shawshank prison, you know, the location he used for the Shawshank. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I always drive by it wondering, how come I'm not using that prison? I mean, I can do an escape. (laughs) I need to make that doing an action escape movie. And then I went, breakout, oh, you know? And I went, oh, boy, yeah. okay. So I started kind of formulate a plan and thought I'll get Robert in it, you know? And that'll that'll hook me right back to the 70s. So, you know, I met Robert at the Texas Frightmare Film Festival and uh, I, I went through the script with them and I had him do lines, you know? I wanted to see, well, can he do the dialogue? Because I didn't want to have, you know, in Death Kiss, he says three, three lines. You know? Yeah, yeah, he barely <laughs> says anything, like, yeah. Yeah, as in his English is not the best. He has to learn it. You know, he has to read it and study it. And so I had him read some lines and then I'm like, okay, I'm just going to change this part to be a guy coming from Hungary to America. So Robert could just be Robert. He didn't have to, you know, mm-hmm. and the way he would say a word, uh, uh, like I give him a line of dialogue and he'd flip it. So I just would rewrite it, you know, and like, okay, that's the way it should go. So mm-hmm. I listened to the way he talked. I understood, okay, here's how I got to formulate it. And it worked out really good. I mean, actually, I think it made the story better. I think because I wanted to make a simple movie, not about technology and cell phones. I wanted it to be a foreigner coming from another country here. And, you know, it's a code of honor. You know, if you make a deal, you honor the deal. And he doesn't understand why they won't just, you have a deal. What's the problem? I mean, you know, where I'm from, you know, if I do a handshake deal with my neighbor or something, you know, I, I help him put up the bar and whatever, you know I mean? It is what we do, you know, it's just like, and when I was actually working in Eastern Europe a few years back on the sci-fi channel movies, 
I kind of noticed that, you know, in Romania and Bulgaria and stuff, you know, there's obviously stealing and things happen, but I just noticed a sense where people had a little more respect for something that wasn't theirs. You know, it was like that thing we've lost, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, getting back to it. So I thought, well, this L actually works. So by having Robert in it, playing it as a Hungarian coming here, um, it just really made it play better for me right off the bat. I'm like, okay, the audience can get behind it. They may not know a lot about Hungary, but you know, it's obviously, you know, it's a, you know, it's not a third world country. I mean, it's, they've got everything we've got, but it's, it's just a mindset, you know, it's more of an old world mindset, you know? And I thought, well, that's kind of what I wanted the movie to be. So having him in, it was great. And then, um, of course, you know, I had to populate it with a bunch of people. Yeah. Uh, like Chris, Chris Hahn, uh, I love his relationship with Robert Bonzi and that, of course, yeah. they have their adversarial and then they become not to spoil anything, but they can sort of become allies. And uh, was did you name him uh, Bunyan because of his role uh, in Axe Giant? Was that a bit of a, a wink to his role in the, the, his previous role? And, Axe, Axe Giant, I don't remember. What movie was that? Uh, the the, uh, the Wrath of Paul Bunyan. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, yeah, you sure did. I, yeah. Um, so when I was wor- when I was writing the script up, I knew I was going to have a part for Chris in it that I wanted him to play. And, um, you know, I'm always struggling with names, trying to put some cool names down. You know, I knew Chris was going to play the part. So I just put, oh, you know, I'll just call him Bunyan. And <laughs> yeah. it kind of worked. I was like, because, you know, it was okay. Um, I thought, you know, I'll just call him Bunyan. And, I th- you know, it worked. And Chris Hahn is an ex-wrestler. He used to wrestle under the name Johnny Paradise and Chris Hahn years ago with the WWE. So Chris has got this, you know, when he walks into a room or if you walk into a room, you know, if Chris is in the room, if there's a group of people, you know, he's there, you know, you can just hear him and he's just got this, you know, uh, uh, presence about him, you know, that's just, you know, overwhelming and draws people in, you know, I'm like, okay, he's got that wrestling persona, you know, and so I'm like, that's the character, you know. He's going to be the king of the cell block. He's going to beat up people. Maybe he does murder. We don't know. And I thought Chris will be able to do it just like his wrestling persona. So I wrote it for Chris Hahn to do what Chris Hahn does. Mm-hmm. And I knew we'd have a lot of fun with it. And initially, I, you know, I had the script was different. It, it didn't it wasn't going to turn out how it wraps up in the end. Hmm. But, you know, as I was writing it, it just felt like, you know, there's such a great back and forth between, you know, this bad guy and this, our perceived good guy and this king of the cell block, who's a bully. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting, you know, if the escape happens a certain way and certain people align and there's different, you know, different characters coming, you know, come into it. So I completely, after I thought about it, like, no, I got to go this direction. Mm -hmm. And um, so the great thing with Chris was also Chris introduced me to Mickey Skadoba, who was um, a kind of world-renowned uh, kickboxing champ guy, and he trainer for years. He plays Nightcrawler in the film, one of the worst guards. Mm-hmm. He only has one one word in the film. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I said, Chris, we got all this action. And so Chris and Mickey kind of teamed up and did stunt coordinating and fight choreography. And then uh, I got introduced, uh, Chris introduced me to Jimmy Lee and the ASWA wrestlers. You know, it's a federation of wrestlers. Uh, regional wrestling teams. So I went and go watch these guys and every one of them is a great character. And I'm like, that's, those are my inmates. They can do a performance. They can fight. 
The only thing I told him is we're going to have no folding chairs, but you're going to have, you know, everything else, right? Got the chains, so, got the two by yeah. four. Yeah. So, you know, it really, the movie came together. It, it was supposed to happen. I realized, cause you know, driving by the prison, meeting Robert, wanting to do a throwback to the seventies. I'm just, it was like, all these things were just floating there. And I'm like, this is crazy. It never really happens that way, you know? Mm-hmm. So I got the, I got, you know, 20, 30 of the wrestling guys to come in, you know, and they did the fights and all the action stuff. And, you know, and then uh, I, I was lucky enough to get um, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs to come in and, you know, he does a little cameo thing in it. And uh, yeah. the great thing about him is he also he- gets us back to, you know, the welcome back Cotter, uh, mm-hmm. Cooley high. I mean, he's been in a ton of stuff and he's, he's always working. Death and, wish, the original death and, wish. So, the connections again, you know? <laughs> yeah. I remember going to see Death Wish, wanting to see the Bronson movie, but me and my buddies always go, Hey, Boom Boom's in that. Boom Boom Washington from Welcome Back Connor, he's in it. Right. And he goes from Cooley High, he's in that one. So we went to see Bronson, but we were waiting also to see Lawrence. So, yeah, by getting Lawrence, and I thought this will be great because then I can do a little homage thing in there, you know, a little connection. And that really helped. Um, he saw Robert and he went, Oh, man. <laughs> it is. It's, yeah it's it, it's eerie how much he looks like charles bronson yeah. it really is uh, uh it is. it's a trip to see him and also you went to some of the uh actors you worked with in the past because it was great to see tim lovelace from mosquito mm-hmm. pop up in the movie as well yeah tim you know we go way back and uh, he was also an axe giant and uh-huh. uh, um it's kind of interesting because you know he um we met early on back you know back way back in the you know late 80s and i was doing makeup effects and i he was acting and there was a commercial. I made him up to be a werewolf. He turns into a werewolf in the commercial. So he came out to the studio and we did all the makeup stuff. And I had some giant mosquitoes that I was working on. He goes, what's that? I go, that's my movie. I'm going to do a movie. He's like, oh, dude, I got to be in it, you know? And uh, I always knew I was going to cast him in it after I worked with him. I go, ah, he's, he's going to play Ray. But I didn't tell him. I said, well, you can audition for it. <laughs> I had him audition four or five times, you know, I can't just give you this because I would love to play the part, you know, I can't just hand it off to you, you know, so no, it was good. So I've, um, we've kept in touch, you know, and uh, our careers kind of went different ways, but I always, you know, when I'm doing a movie, I'm trying to find a part like, okay, actors I've worked with people in the past, you know, it's that thing where you, you want to get that, the team back together. Right. You right, want to right. And so I always talked to him and Tim always wanted to be in a Western. Dude, cast me in a Western, I'll work for free, you know, and so uh, I came up with this character, I thought, okay, I'll have this guy, Tim's going to be in it, oh, Tim should play Tex, you know, give him a little accent, you know, mm-hmm. not a Western, mm-hmm. but, and it was kind of an important part, you know, it's, uh, it really is, it's kind of a, you know, a character that helps turn the events, and uh, Tim did a great job with it, and so it made it easy for me, too, because I had these people I'd worked with, you know, that I knew what they could do, and then I got really lucky getting um, uh, Debbie Scaletta. Uh, Chris Hahn introduced me to her and, and recommended her. And I met her and I thought, oh, she's going to play that. She could be the warden, you know. And so she came down and read for that and it worked out great. And she's a, a local actress who lives up in Cleveland and she travels a lot. But uh, it was just kind of a perfect thing where I could have the female ward to all right. these grisly looking, you know, sweaty wrestlers, these crazy mm-hmm. guys, you know, and I could have this the one female in there. And then um, Linda Russell, who's an actress from Columbus, Ohio, came in and she plays uh, Detective Borelli. And it kind of sets up a little bit of a not so much a love triangle, but, you know, just a, a, some relationship could be building. There, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. 
And then Bo Roberts, another local actor, came in and placed Warden Deputy Bright. And um, he was actually not in the original script. I didn't have that character. But once I cast Debbie as the warden, as a female warden, I went, she needs a number two guy that actually does all the work. Mm -hmm. That could be like trying to get her affections, you know, like he could move up the ladder here. Ann Kurtzman, who's a coordinator on the film that I've worked with in the past, she recommended, she sent me a picture of Bo and I looked at his picture and I went, he should be in a prison movie. I mean, this guy's great. So I called Bo in and I said, hey, here's the script. You're not in it, but I want you to play a part in it. <laughs> and he's like, sure. And so, you know, I wrote his part in as we went. But uh, so getting the local actors together, all the wrestlers, and then, oh, and Nick Turturro, we got Nick Turturro to come in to play kind of an interesting, uh, not so nice guy part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He just brought... Nick Turturro brought what Nick Turturro, you know, can do. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Nick, it's almost like he doesn't have to even think about it. He came in and he just nails this character. And it was great him with him working with Robert because Robert would study the dialogue, right? He would put the dialogue up on the wall. He'd say, okay, Renda says this to me, you know, you know, and then I say this. So Robert's listening for the words. So Nick Turturro takes my words and adds a few F words in there and switches it all up <laughs> and changes it all up. And then Robert's like, that's not the line. Right. So he's <laughs> waiting and I cut and Robert comes up to me, goes, he doesn't know his dialogue. Like, no, Robert. <laughs> Robert, he's, he's making it his own. I go, he goes, yeah, but he's saying the wrong stuff. I go, if he swears at you, you swear it back. If he gets mad at you, you get madder. I said, don't let him push you around, you know? So Nick was priding Robert to get more out of him, you know, yeah, and he, and it worked. Then Robert just started to stand up to him, but I told Robert, don't lay a hand on him. You don't touch him, but get strong with him because I don't want the audiences to know you're going to do anything yet. So right. Robert had a hard time holding back when, when you know, <laughs> uh, Nick pushes him, Robert was ready to hit him. <laughs> <laughs> and he had the fist down there and I'm like, don't do it, man. Don't, don't, you know, don't hit him back. You know, so, no, it was just good. It was good. Uh, it was a good thing. And it, and it really, uh, Robert got really good uh, picking up everybody's character and figuring out how to work with them. So once he met Chris Hahn and Robert doesn't say much, Chris is loud and he talks all the time they had a good rapport, you know, Robert would just listen and say one word or two words, you know, so I had that really good contrast and I'm like, ah, it's kind of a lethal weapon thing here. We got something interesting going. So, you know, there's a good little team here. So no, it it really worked out well, but like I said, all these elements were there and they just, some of them were just floating there in front of me. I didn't see them until I looked, you know? And so the movie, it, you know, it was the fastest movie I've ever, you know, launched. I mean, I, from the idea to actually shooting was about four and a half, five months. Wow. wow. And how long did, how long was the shoot? So we, we broke the shoot up in two parts because we had a couple of issues. One is it's an independent film. And I know it was a lot of people, if you, you know, Hollywood movies usually have a budget that's enormous. On independent films, you know, you never have enough money. So I had a little window of opportunity. I had one week that I could use the prison in, you know, on this particular date in, in August. And then the next window was going to be in November. So I tried to shoot, you know, as much as I could in that first leg of the shoot. I always planned on taking about a month off and then picking it back up. Um, and one of the reasons was, is because I, me and my wife did most of the financing. Now we had other investors come in, but 
the movie was big and, you know, we needed more money. So I would always go, I would do my shoot. I prepped it. We shot for about a week and a half. Then I went and produced the movie for my buddy and took all that money I made and put it back into my movie. Mm -hmm. So it was a constant back and forth of working, amassing money, getting more investment, bringing it in the shoot. So we did really two big shoots, um, which was about a month and a half apart. And then we did, we picked up a few weekends. So all told, we're probably about 28 days okay. shooting. And um, we did about, you know, eight to 10 days in front of the green screen. And then we had our, uh, our uh, jail cell that we actually built a set on our little stage because mm -hmm. the jail cells are like, they're so small, three people can barely fit in them. They're real cages. I mean, you're you in know. there, you know, you're in jail. So uh, <laughs> we built a cell, we could pull the walls out and everything. Uh -huh. And so we did. We did a day or two shooting with some cells too. So all in about 28 days, but it was really spread out over, you know, we shot in 2018. Uh, most of it was 2018. And then the rest of it was a little bit at the beginning of 2019. Yeah. So, so then, now your, your background's in, in practical effects, but this actually uses, particularly towards the end, uses a lot of uh, digital effects. So, but that's actually something you have been dealing with for a little while. So what was, what's the difference for you? Like what, what's your preference in terms of well, using practical or, or digital? Well, you know, I, I started out doing practical effects. That was my way into the business, mm -hmm. right? You know, working on, you know, doing practical stuff and working on the evil dead movies. Mm -hmm. You know, and I kind of broke in that way and I was able to get on a set and watch other directors. But so I came from makeup effects, miniatures and pyrotechnics, all the practical stuff. I broke into the business. Once I started directing, I realized quickly I better learn visual effects because everything was going that way. Right. You know, I'm like, right. as a director, I'm going to be shooting on a green screen. I'm going to be shooting with weapons that with no blanks. I mean, just everything. Right. So I sort of taught myself visual effects mainly because I knew I had movies that I was working on that were going to need effects and the budgets were small that I couldn't really afford to hire a lot of other people on. So I would tell the producers, Hey, I'll, I'll do the effects on that. You know, if you let me shoot the scene, I'll do the effects. So they're mm. like, okay, you don't charge us. You can do the effects, you know, so <laughs> keep your mouth shut or you're doing all <laughs> So no, so I, I taught myself visual effects and in between my movies, I sort of started a little side career of doing effects for other directors and other producer friends. They'd call me up and say, I'm doing this movie. Can you give me some effects? And then I started working with a producer that started to do a lot of Hallmark movies and Lifetime movies. And most of those are, you know, they're, they're, the budgets are pretty low, um, but there were a lot of Christmas movies and they needed snow, you know, because they would shoot these things mm -hmm. with a couple snow blankets. Right. Right. But then, you know, they got to get wide shots with snow everywhere. So I would be called in and I put snow everywhere. So I did tons of falling snow. I would put snow on the houses, wherever the blankets were. If there was a snow blanket, I'd take the wrinkles out of it because they're always wrinkly if you get too close, you know. So <laughs> I started just doing tons of that stuff on the side. And that became my side business in between doing my movies. And okay. so it became a side business that I had to take. I personally, you know, when I did Death Block, um, my budget was low. I looked at it. I said, look, I don't, I don't have money. I mean, I could do the squibs and we could do all the blank firing weapons. I know how to do it all. I've done it. But, you know, a blank is like $2 and a squib is like $30 just to buy them. Mm. Well, you do 20 squibs. Now you need the time, the safety, uh, take two. I mean, yeah. it just eats up, you know, mm -hmm. it's basically a time and a money and suck, which, you know, and it's safety. 
So everything slows everything down. And I'm like, well, I can't do it. I'll have to do it later. Personally, I prefer both. I, I like to use a mix of both. Um, I like to use blank firing weapons when I can, when it's safe. If you get in a situation where it's close quarters, you can just do digital, you know? Mm -hmm. But I always, I always like to have some blank firing weapons on set shooting stuff so that as a digital effects artist, I can look and see how that interacts with people and the lighting and all that to help match it better in digital. So I prefer practical effects. Right. Really over digital effects if you can do it. Um, and we used to do it all that way. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I worked on a movie called Hard Target that uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme started. Yeah. John Wu directed. And I was on the effects crew. And all we did every day was wire thousands of squibs and blow things up. And it was just a dream job, you know. But <laughs> we had, you know, there was 10 of us. And we'd roll carts on a set and we'd rig all day long. And then they'd come in and we'd blow everything up. They'd leave. We'd go rig the next. I mean, this was like 10 weeks straight of doing that. Wow. A lot of money, you know, yeah. all yeah. the safety issues, everything. So it's just, it's kind of cost prohibitive. And so on a low budget, um, my goal is always to try to do as much practical, but you know, when it becomes a stunt thing or it becomes a safety issue and you don't have a lot of time on a shoot, then you need to go digital on things, you know, and, and, right. you know, so we basically on our film, you know, it was a lot of digital, um, you know, not only muzzle flashes, you know, the, the chamber opens, a shell flies out, there's flashes and faces mm -hmm. and there's residual smoke. I mean, it's, there's 12 things going on, you know, it's right. not just flash. So it's a lot of stuff, you know? Um, but I think that, you know, the balance, you can balance the two. And I think my movies in the future will balance the two, you know, if, there's a car chase you'd like to have cars you'd like to have yeah. people in them right? sure and if it's a crazy ideally stunt, yeah <laughs> and if it's a stunt you know well now you're looking at you know twenty thirty thousand dollars to make these stunts work you know right right well you know that's your signature sequence but you know when it gets down to like well if we put a stuntman in there driving that it's x amount of dollars right but if we don't put a stuntman in there and you digitally put someone in there you know you could save two thousand dollars and somebody you know and it's the health you know the health thing sure. so then it becomes a balance of when to do it you know and i think i mean hollywood's kind of getting there like you know there's what there's so many wire removals you know people flying through the air there's 15 wires on them you know in the old days we used to have used thin wires so you didn't see them well now you can just have a nice thick safe wire and just erase it mm -hmm. so i like practicals um but i think uh you know when it's necessary the digital i really like digital effects you don't know they're there Mm -hmm. Those are my favorite, you know, if yeah. I watch, a, yeah. if I watch a Marvel movie, I know everything I'm looking at is digital, but I like when Ridley Scott, when he does his movies, he tries to build enormous sets and set pieces and you're getting a real sense that actors are in those environments and doing that, you know, and the space helmets and all the stuff, you know, all that physical stuff is, is great. And I love to have that. The actors love all that stuff. You know, it gives them yeah. a real sense they're there. Cool. And you sort of like, were you self-taught basically? You taught yourself how to do the, the, the sort of practical effects when you were just starting out. I yeah, know your, your, your first job was, I think, as a PA on Crime Wave. I think that was your first, was that your first job <laughs> on a set? Yeah, I was a PA on that film and uh, um, it was a great experience. But they, it's interesting. That, again, they called us in and they're like, you, you know, I called up to be a PA and they said, great. And he goes, do you have a car? Well, yeah, bring your car. I'm like, okay. Now you're going to bring your car, right? I'm like, he asked me three times. Well, yeah, <laughs> your car runs, right? Yeah. 
So I get there. What do they do? They go, okay, we want you to drive on the freeway behind the chase cars, you know, all the actions happening and your cars on the freeway. So they put gel, they sprayed glue on our headlights and put blue gels on them. They wanted my car. (laughs) We're driving up and down all night long. I had a great time, but you know, once again, I learned, ah, that's how filmmaking works, you know, (laughs) reel them in and then make sure, you know, they're so yeah, I was a PA on that, but uh, I pretty much, I grew up watching all these movies and loving all the action movies and, you know, uh, watching King Kong and the uh, Sinbad movies, Ray Harry Hawson movies. And I love stop yeah. motion and I loved all the creatures and, you know, Dick Smith's makeup and the exorcist. I mean, just loved all that stuff. Um, them, the giant ant movie, you know, they actually mm-hmm. made giant practical monsters, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I just love that aspect of it. So I self-taught myself makeup effects and taught myself how to do pyrotechnics. You know, we started out with little firecrackers and figuring out, hmm, if we do a blood bag and a firecracker and put some padding behind it, you know. So it was really all about, it was kind of a self-taught. But then I met a couple of guys that I corresponded with over the phone and uh, in letter writing out in L.A. that were in the special effects business. And they did practical stuff. And they were very helpful in telling me, here's how this stuff works. You need a license for this. You need to practice that, mm-hmm. you know? And so I got a lot of great advice and self-taught. And then eventually I went and got some permits and stuff and started to get, you know, into the business of actually practicing and training. And so I had the, you know, I got those licenses and then I did the whole training with weapons and I got a, a, a weapons license so that I could rent blank firing weapon, weapons from Hollywood. You know, I grew up in Michigan and we were, me and my partner were the only ones there that were really doing pyrotechnics and guns and practicals. So I kind of self-taught, learned all that stuff, got the right permits. We never, no one ever got hurt. We were always very safe, safety conscious, but we would always test and try everything out before we went to a set. So I did that for several years and um, I left it all behind when I got into moving into directing because I thought, you know, you've really got to focus in, you know. And if I'm starting now to look to get into that director's chair, I can't be the guy walking on a set that's going to plant explosives. You know, right. just not, right. you can't do that. So I left all that behind, went into the directing and everything. And um, and I love effects and I kind of missed it. You know, I love just being on the crew, not being responsible for everything, but being responsible for making something explode or something cool happen, you know? Um, and so when you kind of get a little bit of that with the Hallmark movies. Exactly. A little bit of that. Yeah. You know, nothing explodes. Although, you know, I'm trying to think, yeah, I think I blew up some balloons with confetti or something. There you but, go. Uh, <laughs> you know, actually, uh, I got a couple producers did a lot of Lifetime movies. Mm-hmm. So I started doing these movies called The Wrong Husband, The Wrong Neighbor, you know, The, the Wrong Wife. You know, they're all kind of named the same, but it's all this uh <laughs> you know, husband dies and his, you know, his business partner killed him and is moving in to try to take over the family and the daughter figures it out, you know? And so there's always like one or two gunshots and somebody gets some blood out of them. So they, I got a chance to do a little bit of that stuff and kind of blow up a car with some flames and stuff. And with practice, all these were uh, digital effects, by the way. Um, but the one thing I did different than a lot of people is I would, uh, I'd set up in my basement, I set up a green screen and black screen. And I would go shoot elements. I had one film where this girl um, hits a guy on the head with a, it's like a, a statue. And it 
kills him and there's blood on the statue and she drops it on the floor and it rolls onto a white carpet and they shot it in a big mansion in Beverly Hills. So they roll the statue on a carpet with no blood. And I have to put the blood in. <laughs> so, you know, I got a carpet that matched it and I made a, a fake thing that looked, you know, green thing that looked like the statue and I put blood on it and I rolled it across the carpet and filmed it, you know, with, you know, um, eight, you know, 4k camera. So I could see how it would work and I could pull elements. So I'd start to do a lot of that. So I would do digital effects, but I would introduce practical elements. Sure. Yeah. And I used to do that stuff. So I'm like, right, oh, right. why don't I just shoot it? Why, why make it out of 3d? I can just shoot it and bring right. it in, you know, check through the lighting and that, but uh, I do, I enjoy all the effects. Um, I like a mix of them and um, but no, I, I can't wait to get on the next one and bring in some, you know, bring in practical weapons and, and pyrotechnics again, and, you know, kind of, get back to some of that and not, not have to do all the digital stuff myself. Right. So when you, when you, when you did Mosquito uh, as your directorial debut, which is a movie I love, uh, are you saying you didn't do many of the effects? Cause I think didn't your effects guy kind of quit during the, well, we, well, one of the guys did, there was one guy that came out that was actually helping, but he wasn't the lead guy. Okay. Um, okay. I know the stories out there that the effects guy quit. And, um, yeah. He went actually, out for some cigarettes and never came yeah, back. <laughs> he went out for some cigarettes, but what it was is he got a he got a uh, introduction out in L.A. with a company to do effects. So you know he jumped ship and went there. Um, but no, uh, yes, I did do a lot of the stuff, but it was mostly practical, and I had help with uh, Richard Jacobson, and we had about eight or nine guys. A lot of guys, Jeff Ginnard and that. A lot of guys I had worked with, and they had worked for me on different movies. So yeah, we built all those practical. And there's stop motion in the movie. You know, I had a, a friend mm -hmm. I met, uh, you know, out of town that did stop motion. And so he got, did me three or four shots and, but we built the puppets and sent them to him. And then he did the 3D, you know, the, the digital animation and stuff, um, stop motion. And then we did a couple of uh, computer generated shots, like two or three, but mostly was like blue screen compositing and stuff, but all pretty much all practicals. And, you know, we had to have thin wires so you didn't see them and stuff. So, yeah, it was uh, that that was a challenge, that movie. It, actually, Deathblock and Mosquito have a lot in common where it was just a ton of work, a ton of work to complete them because I set the stage for it. You know, like, all right, mosquitoes are everywhere. They're six foot. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you got to show it. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Right. And I almost wondered if that building that is, I think, the rubber factory and death block, I wondered if it almost was like for a second, uh, I thought, is that the building that you actually shot Mosquito in? Because it looked a lot like the building you shot that in. No, it was interesting that, um, yeah, we shot Mosquito in a little a little tiny factory down in Detroit. Uh, the, the guy that owned it moved out and got to a bigger place. And he came on board as a producer. And part of his deal was he'd give us the factory. You know, so his investment was you get the factory for a year. So it was great, you know, but uh, no, the, the rubber factory, um, good friend of mine in town, Steve Kurtzman, it's one of his businesses and they actually, they chew up tires there and mm -hmm. they make all this rubber mulch for like, you know, um, garden stuff and they mm -hmm. make, you know, uh, floor mats to step on and all kinds of stuff. But when I went there, cause I knew I wanted to have this a factory in it, I went there and I saw the tires being chewed up. And of course I went, Oh boy. <laughs> there, there, there's this there. I mean, what ha you know you've seen all the videos on youtube where they put people are putting bicycles and free mm -hmm. refrigerators in those grinders you know and i went there and i watched the tires being ground up and of course i'm thinking 
gosh, what would that do to a person? Well, exactly. So I asked Steve, I said, Hey, you know, I got this idea. Um, you know, uh, this factory is kind of, you know, doubling as possibly uh, bad guys running it and running some stuff through it. Can I use it? And he was like, yeah, you can use it. And I said, Hey, um, I'll change the name on everything. He's like, no, no, keep the name. I want the publicity. I said, well, <laughs> I told him what's going on. And here he goes, well, I don't care. <laughs> That's all right. So I'm like, okay, dude, I'll, you know, I made sure of all the shots when the movie's done. I said, take a look, you know, I can change the sign now or it's never going to get changed. He's, no, no, I'll leave it. It's good. So, so no, he, uh, he had that factory and I went in there and I'm like, this is perfect. I, you know, the office is here upstairs. The grinders are, I mean, it just worked out great. And there was a lot of aspects about that factory that had long corridors and hallways and basements that could easily match stuff at the prison. Right. And oh. so because oh, okay. I had a limited amount of time at the prison, I could take some of that work over to the factory, which I had pretty much uh, the run of the mill of the place, uh, the weekends when they weren't shooting. So I could go there and, you know, anytime after five o'clock or all day on Sunday. So we did a lot of Sunday shoots there. Okay. But, um, okay. But yeah, no, it just, it worked out great. And of course, once I saw the tires grinding, I'm like, I'll put that in the script. Yeah. You know? yeah. Now, now so, when you were, when you were starting out in effects and you started, you got into like Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. That's like around that time you did Moon Trap. You did some of those movies. You decided you wanted to start making your own movies. What did you, what did you learn through those experiences that you bring into directing? Well, I always wanted to make my own movies. It just, you know, I always thought it, you had to be like, you know, when I grew up watching like some behind the scenes stuff that you get old, there's always a guy with a pipe. He's 45, 50 years old. So I thought, all right, well, that's down the line. I always wanted to do it. It didn't really know how to get in. And then, you know, after seeing like Texas Chainsaw and Jaws, they're relatively young men doing it. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, you can do it. But no, for me, once I, you know, once I had an artistic background and once I started doing all these effects things, it was a way to get on the sets so I could yeah. work. And so, you know, one of the first ones I got on, it was Crime Wave. And of course, I learned a lot on that, you know tell them you don't have a car that runs, you know, but uh, <laughs> no, it was great. But through crime wave, I met the next three or four people I did movies with. Right. So again, it was all kind of always connections and, you know, doing movies in Michigan, it's all interconnected. You know, it's really a small community and you'll work with people that say, Oh, I'm going to go do a movie next year. You know? So it was really about, uh, you know, going through those, those opportunities and then getting on a set, like, uh, you know, I did crime wave, which led to, Strikers War, where I did effects, which led to Evil Dead 2, you know, doing effects and stuff on that. And you and did like miniature, like the miniature, the trees, right? And then the end yeah. creature that gets blown up. Uh, yeah, the well, uh, yeah, the Deadites. The, um, there's a miniature cabin. There's a cabin in the movie where the, the, the trees attack the cabin. Um, they did it with a lot of practicals, but Sam wanted to get these wide shots. And so um, the guys I'm working with, they built a, a miniature cabin. And me and my buddies built the man, the trees, the, the prop trees that come out of the ground and just attack the cabin. So they were awesome. operated from below the set. And again, it's like this miniature stuff, which I love, you know, there's a charm to it. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. when the movie came out, I can kind of you can kind of tell it might be miniature, but it's just a charm to that stuff. So, yeah. yeah so doing all of that and working with Sam and Bruce and the guys, I would watch Sam and, you know, Sam's my age. And I'm doing the effects and he's directing. So right. it was, I have to say, you know, um, working with Sam on Evil Dead and then Army of Darkness was 
the biggest learning curve for me because I'm on that set, you know, and then doing Moontrap, the original Moontrap, we did all the robots and all that stuff. And it was a different thing, you know, but, um, and I learned quite a bit on there too, but we were really so busy, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a blur, but, mm -hmm. but the evil dead movies, no, I watched Sam and I was able to see how he would put scenes together. And I learned like a valuable lesson, which was, you know, how to treat people, you know, you're a director mm -hmm. on a set. And I remember working on some movies and I won't mention, but where the director's an a-hole, you know, yeah. and if something doesn't work, you know, you make a mistake doesn't work or whatever if an effect doesn't work then you get hollered at i'm like mm -hmm. dude it's an effect you know look we'll try it again you know and i always learned it's like you know wow you know it, do you want to get 200 out of people you know well you know and sam would be like oh that didn't work pal but it'll work tomorrow let's do this you know <laughs> and he was always and when you did something that worked he would thank you you know thanks pal that was great buddy oh, he, you know so when you'd see the director get excited over something and he would be like that with everybody, the costumes, whatever you went, wow. Okay. You want to give that person 200%. Now, if you're making movies and you're doing independent movies, you're not paying a lot of money. Technically you're not paying money to get a hundred percent out of people, right? You might be <laughs> paying enough to get 45% or 50, <laughs> but you need 200. Mm -hmm. So it's attitude. It's how you treat people, how you talk right. to people. And I learned a lot of that from Sam on those early movies, you know, because he was at a young age, but he talked to people, sir, you know, he was always very polite with, you know, and the way he did things. So I kind of learned a lot of protocol that way. And also how he would plan stuff and shoot stuff. And then working with John Woo on Hard Target, um, I learned quite a bit of stuff. You know, I'd say like, what? He's putting four cameras there, five cameras. I go, well, that there's no what's the magic there? I mean, anybody can put five <laughs> cameras out. Well, then I would go watch the dailies, you know, and they would project them. And I go, well, that camera's that, why put the camera there? That looks like crap. And then there'd be one moment where the motorcycle would flip and land just perfect. And I'm like, oh, and so I'd watch all this stuff. And invariably there's one or two moments in every one of those shots. And those are the moments that make the cut. Right. So uh -huh. it's like, no, no, no. He knows what he's doing. He Got knows it. that's going to flip. He knows he needs the piece of the guy falling there to connect to that. So I watched John Woo and I saw, I get it. He's the connections, how he's making the stuff work. Yeah. And but but in on when you're shooting, like on on stuff that maybe is a little bit less sizably budgeted, like do you get to do multiple cameras or do you just know you have to kind of get these pieces individually and then put them together? Well, I mean, on on Death Block, we had two, we had three cameras actually. I ran two quite a bit. Okay. A lot of the movie, I could only really do one camera on just because of the, you know, how we were doing stuff. But, sure. you know, I always try to use a minimum of two. Um, and that's been my mainstays, mostly two, sometimes three. Um, and I like it because it's also the thing I sort of learned. You know, I watch Spielberg's movies and I, you know, you'd analyze the cuts and stuff and you'd go, they're not going back to the master shot. That's a master from over here. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm thinking, oh, he's doing two masters or a mini master. And then he's. And I'm thinking, why, why are you doing that? You know, it's more cameras, it's more people, it's more everything. But then the scene just has a flow to it. You know, you can take a scene that's kind of dead, you know, if it's one camera and people are talking. But if you have more angles to cut to and everything, you get the chance to, number one, snip out dialogue that doesn't work or go over somebody's shoulder and add an extra line in to help it later on. And you're pacing. So I just learned that. And it's a speed thing. 
um, if I'm shooting a scene and I can put two cameras up there, I may only get two takes, one take. But I've got right. an out if I want to cut away over his shoulder and add a line later. So it became a necessity for that. But it's also the action thing from what I learned from John Woo. You know, it's like there's you're, there's a fight going on and there's going to be moments where it's the best from over here, you know, down low or from the back. And if you can put a couple of cameras on it, these guys are beating themselves up. You know, you don't want to do it 50 times. <laughs> right. Right. I, right. I learned I learned that working on Xena Warrior Princess when I was doing all this action stuff. The stunt guy'd ride in and fall off his horse and he missed the mark. And I had him do it about four times. And then finally the coordinator came and said, Gary, you, you're beating the guy up. <laughs> <laughs> the camera has to catch it or you yeah. just got to go wide. And I'm like, I get it. You know, so it's this learning curve on things, you know, so it's really about, you know, I know a lot of people complain, oh, you know, these directors, they put out 15 cameras and stuff. Well, you know, there's a visual style they're doing, but it's also like you don't have time. People don't understand when you get out right. there. The first thing that happens is the clock starts ticking. Right. Right. And your enemy is the clock is time. Mm -hmm. You may have everybody on the set ready to go and all the money in the world. But when that clock ticks down, it shuts down. You may not get to come back. So you and have a lower budget and a lower budget. You don't really have the time oh, <laughs> at all. Right. right. So, I mean, I would, you know, we would block rehearse kind of loosely. And then, I, you know, I do that and say, OK, put that camera there and you handheld and follow him. Once he drops down, go to that guy. And focus on his face. Don't worry about where he's punching. You know, I'm getting the punch from over here. So I'd watch stuff and I'd go, you know, I'm putting on the that hat, you know, like, ah, that's what John Wu would do. Or, you know, a sandwich, shoot that gag that way, you know. But I would start to look at what do I want to see? How do I get it? So I learned from those guys how to get what I'm looking for. And sometimes it's two cameras. Sometimes it's only one. And it's just move them around and follow them, you know, let them talk and move around, you know. Um, but it's it all comes down to how much time you have on an independent film. you got to make these hard choices. And, you know, the problem is we don't get to put a little banner at the beginning of our movie for people when they're like when they're looking for a movie to watch. And they've got something like, you know, Red Notice, right? Big action movie. It's coming out on Netflix, you know, it's got The Rock and, you know, and the big stars. We don't get to put a, uh, our movie next to that and say, hey, we're independent and low budget. We don't have as much money. <laughs> but you know, check us out because we're fun too. It's like, <laughs> you don't get that. Right. Audiences right. expect, you, you can't make a, a blanket statement. Oh, give us a break. Now, now uh, you have directed a bunch of genre movies, particularly obviously starting Mosquito, but also Boogeyman 3. You sort of done a lot in the genre of like horror films and creature features, but this is obviously a bit of a departure doing action. Is is that, and you've done action, obviously working on, on Hard Target. Is that somewhere where you'd like to stay in terms of the action genre or are you sort of thinking anything for your next project? Well, I, I mean, I, I'm thinking I've got two action things I'm kind of developing right now, but I actually started before I did this movie. I got very, very close with a, with a horror movie I was working on. And it actually was gonna take place in part of the prison that it looks more like an insane asylum. So, I mean, okay. I, I was developing a, a horror film and I got real close, but this action bug just kept coming back. Like, <laughs> you know, um, and I had, you know, I grew up with these movies, but I grew up with all the giant monster movies too. So right. I'm not, I would have to say that I will, I will bounce back around between genres. I mean, I've got a, a great horror movie I'd like to do. I got another creature feature I'd like to do, but, it's like a timing thing, you know, 
mm-hmm. you know, is the world tired of, you know, I don't have a shark movie, but I mean, we've had enough <laughs> shark movies, right? It's sure, like, sure. You know, you're not going to get anybody interested, you know, so, uh, but no, I think action is where I'm going to be. I think I've got at least uh, two that I want to try to pull off. And again, they're, you know, it, it, it takes me back to that era I grew up in. And I, I like that code of honor and that simplicity stuff, uh, but also finding a twist. But, you know, and my other goal is really to, I want to work with all these actors that I kind of grew up like, right. you know, mm-hmm. and um, familiar faces. And, you know, when I did Mosquito, one of my goals was once I get Mosquito done, I'm going to go out to LA and work for Roger Corman. <laughs> I want to make those movies, you know? Right. Right. And uh, I made Mosquito and then I got to call to go to New Zealand to work on a TV show, Xena Warrior Princess. And I'm like, holy cow. OK, you know, I'm going to New Zealand, you know, and so, <laughs> forget this Roger Corman guy. <laughs> oh, you know, so what happened was interesting. So it's uh, this job came up and I'm like, wow, I can work a year, you know. And remember, I just done Mosquito. I made like no money and I've got a family to support. And now I get to take the family to New Zealand for a year. And they're going to wow. pay me how much? I mean, I, I couldn't pass it up. Sure. So I, get, I finish on Xena. And as I'm getting to the end of Xena, you know, they make an offer of like, okay, you'll d- can direct one of the episodes, but you have to join the DGA, you know, because it's a director's guild thing. I'm like, mm-hmm. sure, I'll join the DGA. Mm-hmm. So I join the DGA and we finish on Xena and I go down, I start directing some episodes. Then I'm back in LA. I start knocking on doors. And I can't work for Roger Corman. Yeah, because you're in the DGA. <laughs> the DGA. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, but I want to go through that. I, I, I want to do those, you know. Right. I knew Zena had, you know, Zena had a certain amount of cachet. But when we were making it, I wasn't aware of how popular it was going to be mm-hmm. or was. Mm-hmm. Until I got back here and I saw the billboards on Sunset Boulevard. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> it's that big? You know, so, yeah. but no, all of a sudden I was in the DGA and a producer friend of mine said, you know, Gary, I mean, if you got in too early, you know, is it like, <laughs> so I went from like working a lot, you know, doing Zena and everything. And then a couple other TV shows, then I couldn't get work for a couple of years because everything was non-union. And I'm like, mm. I can't take it. I can't take it. Right. And I'm like, right. holy cow, you know, so it's really, a, it's a challenge. And you know, I tell people when they, when they have a career path, you got to, you got to really pay attention to it and decide when things are right for you. I mean, ultimately I'm happy. I did, you know, don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. I wouldn't go back and change it, but I don't know. Maybe if I could have done a couple of Corman movies, maybe I wouldn't have done an extra Zine episode or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's, it's a real, it's a real interesting thing. You know, when you, as we get into these movies, you know, you start to padding your career after directors and, and people you like, you know, you follow, but I tell everybody your career is different. You know, your path's going to be different. I mean, is the time right for you to do that? Or like, should you take that movie? You know, like I got offered some movies. I turned one or two down. But, you know, I mean, I have a family, right? So um, I took some movies my friends wouldn't take because they're waiting for the bigger ones. Right. So, you right. know, it's they're, they're all choices, you know. And, uh, and I took the movies not necessarily just to get the money. I mean, I, I went, okay, can I do something with this? You know, mm-hmm. or like, wow, this is a tired idea, you know. But then... I get the script. I go, Hey, script's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, this is not, this is, and I talked to the writer. I'm like, you know, this is actually pretty good. I think I can do something good with this. So actually it was a win-win. I right, got, right, I got paid right, right, and right, the right. material was good. I mean, I only had one movie 
one sci-fi movie where, you know, I accepted the job and they sent this, you know, before they sent the script. And, but I kind of trusted it had elements. It sounded like, you know, oh, you got that person for it. It's this kind of a thing. Okay. That sounds different enough. So I get the script just before I get on the plane to fly over there. And I'm on the plane and I start reading the script and I'm like, this script's terrible. <laughs> I'm on the plane flying there and I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like, well, this is going to be the one, is this going to be the one they say, see, don't take everything you're offered, you know? So I got there and the producer, I got with him and he said, script's not so good. Huh? I go, man, dude, this is, you should have sent me this a week ago. And so he was, he was saying, look, we're going to rewrite it, you know? And I go, you, you know, so we talked and he just knocked out and he actually in like two weeks time, I had about two and a half weeks of prep it was not a lot of prep. And I said, you know, we knew where we could go. And he knocked out the script in two weeks. And I'm like, this is shootable. You know, mm -hmm. this now is not, it, it, it started out being a real embarrassment to like, this is okay. This can work, you know, and we got through it. And, um, you know, I got to work with actors and people I wanted to work with. And the, and the producer was great. I mean, he just, you know, he, he pulled that out of his rear, you know, and he's, he's a writer. He's a, you know, he, he understood, you know, and so it really worked well and um, got some good relationships from it. And it's not one of my worst movies. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> That's good. Well, I know you say that there's a lot of shark movies out there, but there aren't tons of giant mosquito movies. So I don't know. I mean, I don't want to tell you, give you advice, but I'm just saying, I don't know. Mosquito 2? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. I, I, mosquito well, 2? Mosquitoes at Christmas time? I'm just go. saying. Blend I mean, the two. Get all those connections together. Mm -hmm. I can, yeah, if I can make a, 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 a giant mosquito movie at Christmas, a family movie with dogs. Right. It, fighting the mosquitoes, man. I think we can make $100 million. We're on to something. <laughs> there you are. There you you got can find love on. in the strangest places. And so... <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I actually have a script. I've actually had three different ideas for it i have two scripts it's something we always kind of go back to i talk with my buddy tim lovelace he's like when are we doing mosquito too you know and um there was kind of a moment in time where i could have probably pushed it but i was pushing for something some bigger stuff that didn't happen of course always happens that way you know you're sure. like no nah, the grass is greener over there right. no it's not you know that's the septic tank over there it's gonna <laughs> smell you know so you have it and i honestly actually have been going back and going, you know, it's kind of time for it, but how to really do it. So it's, um, you know, so anybody that's somewhat of a fan of that first movie, I mean, there's a lot of fans and it's, it's got the good hearted, you know, campiness to it, you know, and we didn't know how to make a movie. I mean, I learned on that movie, how to make a movie. Sure. Sure. And I learned how to edit after that movie was done. And I went, Oh damn, I should have cut all that out. You know, but, <laughs> um, but no, I, it's, it's there. I want to do it. And, um, you know, it's just kind of finding the right time and, and, and where to go with it. You know, when we did Axe Giant, The Wrath of Paul Bunyan, um, I sort of had a leg in the door with sci-fi, you know, and they were looking for stuff. And I sort of, I pitched them mosquitoes. I pitched them other stuff. But it was just interesting because it started their, it seemed like their trajectory was starting to change from what they wanted. Like they always, they always, to me anyways, always made it seem like, their movies were, they didn't see them as campy, right? Mm -hmm. you no, know, this is serious. And I'm mm. like, are you serious? I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, and then, then they started doing these other TV series, you know, big budget series, really good stuff, you know, and they started to leave 
that Saturday night, let's see what kind of crazy monster we could throw out there this week. They seem to kind of wane back on it. Of course, Sharknado is the thing that they kept alive, right? Because yeah. that, that was a kind of like a crazy cash cow for them. Um, but if I see an opening, you know, and again, it seems right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, there's a million different things I know we can do now, ideas I want to do for the mosquitoes. And I do them all practical with a little bit of CG, you know. Um, right. Because it's just you got to have that charm. It's just got to be there, you know. Yeah. And um, Tim Lovelace is always calling me, dude. When we doing mosquito, I'm not getting any younger, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I said, well, you know what? You can you can be in a wheelchair and you know, we'll get all these young people in there. They can push you around, and then you know we'll give you a shotgun or something. In the yeah, that sounds good. Flamethrower tucked under the wheelchair. Yeah, exactly. You gotta have some somebody as long as somebody still has a chainsaw, you know, you still gotta have that you can't have gunner, but maybe you could still have somebody that have that chainsaw. No, and that was like for me, that was like you know, getting gunner that was a dream come true because I I love chainsaw, the original Texas chainsaw, and I always envied him playing that part. I thought, mm-hmm. God, the guy that played that part, man, what a great part. I'd have loved to have done that, you know. And uh, then I corresponded with him and we finally started talking, and then we were gonna do another movie, but then when uh, Mosquito came up. He came on board and I'm like, I got Gunnar Henson with a chainsaw cutting up a bug. <laughs> I don't have to do anything else. Yeah, that's right. You made it. Yeah. So, no, it was great. And then, and my buddy Ron Ashton from the Stooges, you know, came in yeah. and played yeah. his Hendrix character and Tim and, you know, Rachel and, and Steve Dixon who played the uh, parks. I mean, again, it was all like, it just came together that movie, you know, and all the people in it, uh, it made that movie what it really is. You know, it's the people. You know, there's giant bugs and stuff, but those crazy, wacky characters we kind of came up with and the, the people that played the parts to me was was the most fun. And it's it's kind of the thing that I missed. You know, um, it's tough to do another one without Ron and Gunner and Steve. Right. You know? Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And I, of course, I had a sequel on, OK, Hendrix is still alive, you know, and he climbs up out of this thing at the end and, you know. And so anyway, you just had all the ideas over the years, but yeah, we'll, we'll figure something out. I think, um, you know, we put out the 20th anniversary for Mosquito back in 2015 and we did a Blu-ray with the making of, and I did a big extensive making of kind of showing people like, look, I didn't know what I was doing. We were just figuring it out. But, um, but yeah, I think there's going to be a time in the future. So have to figure out where and when. But good. I'm excited for it. Um, Gary, thank you so much for talking with us. This was awesome. We were really so much so thrilled to be able to talk with you and talk about, you know, uh, your career and everywhere you're going. Now, everybody wants to if you want to watch uh, Escape from Death Block 13, it's available on VOD. And so you can get that wherever you wherever you whatever you use for VOD. It's there, right? It's on Amazon right now. You can go on Amazon and pay to watch it. It's going to be on YouTube, you know, pay-per-view all the VOD. Sure. all the cable places have it, DirecTV, Spectrum, everybody. Uh, but I think a lot of people, oh, and we'll be on the Google Play soon and iTunes also. So you can't escape it. It's, it's around. <laughs> it's around. <laughs> you yeah, can't, escape it. can't escape it. And I always We're tell excited. People, that, if, what's if, that? If, you, uh, if you like the movie, tell 15 friends <laughs> that's the deal that's like the, the deal movie, that we're all agreeing to right? yeah yeah only tell 10 <laughs> if you don't like the movie that's right yeah. that's the deal if you like it, so <laughs> well, that's awesome we can't we can't wait to talk to you again when you make the next movie we're excited to cool. see whatever that is and uh thank you so much for ta- for talking with us we really appreciate it and awesome uh, thank you it's been great and uh really appreciate being on and and you guys keeping this alive i mean this is you know these movies from the past you know and the 
there were just really some charm there. It was really, you know, I think we miss it today, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's yeah, so much do. stuff coming out, but it, I always kind of go back and rewatch these older movies, you know? There's a, there's a great time frame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's a, it's still, it's great that you're still working at, cause it, like you said, it's tough to do low budget filmmaking. And these days when we do have so many high budget Marvel movies, but to, to see people still going out there trying to make, you know, fun exploitation films. I mean, that's what we're here to try to celebrate and try to, you know, help out. And, you know, we're excited that you're still at it. It's, it's great. And we wish you the best of luck with everything. Thank you very much. You I, bet. You bet. I can't wait to be back. Okay, right. yeah. yeah, we can't we wait to have that. you back. That'd be great. And that's it. That's our talk with Gary oh, Jones. So fun. He's yeah, so great. So good. That was so much fun. I mean, the guy, he has so much passion for the work yeah. that he does. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I really admire how much he has done. I mean, he has played every role from producer, writer, director, mm -hmm. editor, actor, visual effects, special effects makeup effects i mean you look at his imdb page that guy has done everything, everything. yeah he sure I has mean, i i think so many people in hollywood would be would feel so fortunate to do as much as he has done oh yeah and i think yeah. he kind of talks about this in the interview too but i just admire how much the guy has been able to pivot he starts out teaching himself special effects he starts working on local michigan projects doing special effects practical special effects goes on to Evil Dead, Army of Darkness, mm -hmm. all these mm -hmm. other projects, starts directing his own films. Then he starts getting into visual effects, working in Hallmark and Lifetime movies, Christmas movies, just finding ways to right. just continue to exist in the business. It's really remarkable. And, and uh, we, we had a great conversation. We're excited to, to maybe one day talk to Gary Jones again on his yeah. next project. Oh, yeah. Also, while we were talking with him, I looked up my Blu-rays, my Charles Bronson Blu-rays, and I... I got the Hungarian mix of all those movies. That's oh. why I got mixed up. Oh, the, oh, 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 the, oh. The, the Chucky Bronze. Yeah, that's right. You thing. do I, go to a Hungarian Blu-ray distributor specifically yeah. for your Charles Bronson movies, which is a real great piece of well, irony in terms of that. The, you know, Escape from Death Block. Buy 13. one, get five free. So you really can't. <laughs> those Hungarian prices are hard to beat. Yeah. They really are. They're so. Uh, but anyway, thank you, Gary Jones, for talking with us. This was great. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Learned a little bit, hopefully. Uh, hey, rate, review us. Uh, listen to uh, you know uh, because you're listening to this podcast. Might as well give us a little bit of love. Subscribe if you can wherever you're listening to us. We'll see you next time on the New World Pictures podcast. Bye, everybody.